to EV Chat Season 3. I'm your host, Rue Phillips. This show is an electric vehicle podcast with a difference. We're going to be interviewing some key players from the electric vehicle industry. Legislators, manufacturers, drivers from the street. Stick around. This is a fun kind of podcast. Today, I am pleased to welcome Lou Cox, Director of Business Development for MD7. MD7 is a real estate portfolio management and consulting company for the wireless telecommunications industry. Lou has been with MD7 since 2015, and he and the team are doing loads of work in planning for a safer, more connected EVSE landscape. Lou is energized by the rapid convergence of the auto and mobile industries and is committed to helping autonomous vehicles a reality. He's responsible for developing new business opportunities in the EV charging space for MD7, which builds from his experience as a salesperson and a trainer at Ford Motor Company and mobile infrastructure at MD7. Since joining MD7 in 2014, Lou has progressed as a negotiator, team leader, project manager, trainer, and business development. In February, he published a really cool post on LinkedIn, debunking a lot of myths about driving EVs, range anxiety, and the perception that EVs are not adequately powerful for our daily use. Welcome aboard, Lou. Tell us a little bit more about MD7. Sure, Rue. So thank you again for having me and, and hosting this conversation today. I'm Luke Cox. I am the business development director for MD7, and we are a mobile and digital infrastructure consultancy. Traditionally, a lot of the players in our space focus more on the asset that we're deploying or the task at hand. We as a company do things a little differently and focus more on the real estate itself, because above all that real estate is where the assets will go. And we feel like control of the ground is the hardest and, and longest pull on the tent, if you will. So we use a, a more centralized strategy of a main base of operations in both San Diego and Allen, Texas, as well as a lot of satellite office that would support the production going on at headquarters. So for us, we've more recently transitioned into electric vehicle infrastructure to hopefully assist with mass adoption. So the mission behind that really coincides directly with some of our core values of giving back to the community and extreme service. So we feel like accelerating mass adoption with renewable energy vehicles, even in the little role that we do play, will truly help our world move toward a more sustainable and connected reality. That's awesome. We need more ambassadors like you there. So you recently wrote a cool article. I actually shared it on the EV infrastructure, telling us about the misguided perception for EVs that they're only for urban areas. Tell us a little bit more about this. Why is there a perception that there's barriers to adoption to EVs? So for us, the barrier for mass adoption, we'll call it what it is, right? Consumer perception. Until people can really see a charging station on just about every corner, very similar to a gas station, those who haven't yet or maybe even won't do the necessary research to understand how viable these vehicles are, at least now and in the immediate future, will automatically reject the idea because it is, in fact, so new. 
we are just now getting to a place where you're in high single digit percentages of new vehicle sales are electric vehicles or partial hybrid electric vehicles. And as infrastructure becomes more available and more accessible, people will see more clearly that this is in fact the future is our hope. So you, you mentioned gas stations, you know, traditional gas stations are amongst the, the most highly lit places that you can go. Why do you think there's not as much emphasis on creating well-designed EV charging stations? Uh, you know, what are the considerations for safety and what are you planning to do about that, Lou? So I believe historically property owners that were approached in the past to deploy this infrastructure really did so because they wanted to kind of check the box, right, as a value add to its own customers. And unfortunately, the front of commercial buildings and retail centers are some of the most coveted and desired locations really in the real estate sector. So places like Target have not yet seen the demand shift from its customers that would justify providing upfront and center access to these stations and, and ultimately these cars. So one of the things that we aim to assist with is bridging that gap between decades of our commercial real estate knowledge used in other industries and, and you know and educating the property partners on what the next four to five years looks like and how consumer demand will shift and you know providing these more attractive locations to install these chargers is going to be effectively the number one benefit that any parking lot can provide to your customers in the future so the tune will change i'm confident of that so what are some of the, the lesser known impacts of improving safety in EVSE planning? Well, in addition to facilitating mass adoption through confidence, like we talked about, right, improving the visibility of the areas where drivers go to charge is going to ensure that they're not victims of, you know, crimes and during charging sessions. It's actually the precise reason that gas stations, as you mentioned, are designed the way that they are, because you would use them at 2 a.m. sometimes. You would use them on road trips when you're maybe not as attentive or a little tired, Cameras everywhere, brightly lit, a staff attendant inside the store in case anything ever goes wrong. These are the things that we over time have really decided as a society are important when we go to refuel. So as we're rolling out this electric vehicle infrastructure, these are also things that we need to keep in mind and try to adopt as much of as possible and kind of learn from our fathers in, in that respect to make sure that these are attractive places for people to recharge. So, you know, in 2012, I was involved in the implementation of uh, early implementation of electric vehicle infrastructure. And uh, back then, there weren't much demand for EVs. And when we went to the, the shopping malls and you mentioned Costco's and whatever, they would give us two spaces right at the back and lighting was actually one of the key emphasis on security so we ended up having to upgrade the lighting on these putting poles and the permit for the pole which in california went down about 18 feet <laughs> was worse than getting a permit for the electric vehicle charger so i'm with you totally on the safety aspect so do you think that placing the ev chargers in a more desirable like well-designed open area can reduce range anxiety? I believe so, because we talked about the real objection from consumers for adoption really is just the perception. When you talk about the average driver's daily habits and the amount of times that they visit a gas station over the course of a week, most people aren't filling up their car every time they get in it, go to the grocery store and drive back. They don't top it off before they go home. So consumers, for some reason, have believed that electric vehicles need to be charged that way. Every single time you get in the vehicle or touch it, inexplicably, we need to replace that range. So when you start to put more of these things in places that are more attractive, you, you 
incorporate it into the people who would be buying these vehicles daily routines, it's not quite so far fetched for them to feel like they can go, you know, to 20 or 30% battery before they go and charge again and not be so nervous about not having that nice 240 mile range number that everybody's kind of seeking these days. So you think if they weren't hidden away and they were in more prominent and attractive areas, more people would adopt EVs, Lou? I believe so, you know, and just in my own personal life, I talk to my family members and colleagues at times and they say, oh, well, there's really no chargers around here. Or I live in a rural part of Nevada and there's only two chargers within 25 miles. If that number wasn't two and it was 20, I believe that we could get a lot more people on board of the conversation of a renewable energy vehicle much easier for them to feel the confidence of driving on their normal routine without watching that range meter tick down with every mile and getting nervous. So MD7 works a lot in leveraging 5G networks to improve the connectivity of smart devices like EVSEs. Now, our listeners may know that, may or may not know, actually, major telecommunications networks are phasing out the 3G and these older networks as we speak. Like AT&T ended up, ended its support, actually, with its 3G network in February and uh, T-Mobile's shutting down its 3G CDMA networks starting the end of March. March. Has this transition had a direct impact, do you think, on EVSEs? And tell us how you're navigating this, Lou. Well, I think so from a perspective of we are preparing all vehicles, new vehicles that are rolling off the, the showroom floors today with what I would call future infrastructure in mind, right? So there's a lot of different ways you can look at how a vehicle is kind of connected to everything around it. And for us, we have the luxury of being right in the middle of both rollouts of 5G infrastructures, small cells, and EV charging. So we're using lessons learned from both industries to kind of expedite the deployment of both these types of infrastructures with jurisdictions through education. You know, we've had multiple teams focusing on both deployments. And as we've seen recently, the intensity on the buildouts has really ramped up, both on the carrier side and the charging side with the new infrastructure bill. And we have started hiring to expand by over 30% this year to support these missions, as well as helping decommission some of this outdated equipment that you're talking about. When most cars these days, when they're produced, at least new ones, are going to have 5G modems in them. That's with, you know, vehicle to everything infrastructure in mind and keeping everything more connected so that we have more data. And more data is usually a very good thing when building out cities and planning and, and helping users understand what is and is not around them at all times. You mentioned 5G has got big implications for the next wave, you like, of connecting our vehicles to the grid and beyond. We've talked about this a lot on our show about V to G, but you're telling us that the future is V to E, vehicle to everything. Tell us a little bit more about that. This is actually a very exciting topic for me because it's an evolution of technology as we know it. It's extremely realistic in the next few years that we start to see cars that not only receive over-the-air updates in its firmware that might increase their speed or be more efficient with the way that they use their batteries, but to communicate live information while in operation to other vehicles around them, to road signs and emergency services over a 5G plus network. I like to imagine a world where an accident three miles down the road is automatically communicated to authorities without somebody having to pick up the phone and call 911 and, and go through the hotline that way. Maybe have a tow truck automatically dispatched from AAA and images of the accident sent over the air from multiple different angles and stop signs over to AAA so we know what kind of trucks to bring to clear the road to reduce traffic. All of these things, traffic patterns, the timing of red lights, detours, you know, average speeds of other drivers on the road, 
These are all things that will help us decide how to build our roadways to make them safer, to make them more efficient, to travel to and from work. And I think that's in everybody's really best interest. So it's a little dystopian in some ways to think about having that much information about an accident or something you're doing automatically. But we're definitely headed the right direction from a safety perspective. And now a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Fluke Corporation the world leader and manufacturer of electrical test and measurement equipment. Fluke keeps your world up and running. You know, with so many diverse types of EV chargers out there and so much voltage behind them, it's more important than ever to have the right tools to safely and efficiently diagnose, troubleshoot, and ensure your electric vehicle supply equipment is working properly after repair. Recently recognized for its intuitive interface and celebrated in the field for its ease of use, the Fluke FEV100 electric vehicle charging station test adapter gives simple on-off or yes-no readings. Clear readings means you can be sure the job is done right. You can rely on Fluke for efficient site repairs while keeping you and your workforce safe from harm along the way. To learn more about Fluke's premium products and a suite of EVSE tools, visit fluke.com. That's F-L-U-K-E dot com. Now let's get back to rocking. So next question is a double-barrel question. I ask this with all my guests. And I say double-barrel. I want you to tell me about reliability and accessibility. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate our current EV infrastructure as far as accessibility and then reliability? So I would start with accessibility right now. I would give it at about a five or a six. I would say that we've put a solid foot forward to really set up people to start to adopt these cars and really be you know, the early adopters, as we call them these days, and, and try and test how sturdy this infrastructure really will be. Now, I will say in my experience, from a reliability perspective, I would give it closer to a three or a four. I think many chargers that I show up at, many charging stations, two out of the four that are available may not be functioning, or I need to call the number on the side of an Electrify America station or something of that nature and have them kind of override the credit card machine because that doesn't work. Very clearly, we're still working out the kinks, um, but in my electric vehicles, and I have several, I have found it more effective to charge at home. But out on the road, as I travel for work and I rent electric vehicles, I have found that we are definitely a long way to the end result of what we all want to see. So let's talk about funding. Five billion plus dollars. I mean, statewide, federal-wide, with the federal government planning on how to deploy infrastructure funds to expand our EV charger network. What are some of your wish list items? I think that's a good question about what I wish for as the federal government continues to adopt policy and provide funding to help with mass adoption. My list is pretty simple. I would think first and foremost, more funding would be a very good place to start. I think that when you do the math on the billions that have been allocated, I love the carve out for the disadvantaged communities to ensure that as we kind of evolve, everybody evolves with us. But I do have an issue with the amount of the bill and the stated goal of 500,000 chargers. I just don't know that 5 billion will get us where we want to be. You're going to have to lean on the private sector very heavily to do this. So the second on my wish list is for 
a continued push for education at the jurisdictional level. You mentioned, you know, how long it takes you to get a permit just to install a light pole at a charging station. It will be and is very difficult in many, many jurisdictions that haven't quite yet caught on to the electric vehicle infrastructure wagon. So continuing to educate them about why speed is important to help with adoption. Every month lost further compounds the problems that we we're talking about before because the jurisdictions are really struggling to understand the impact of the infrastructure and how to treat their citizens as we go about to deploy this. I think we need to treat it very similarly to gas stations as an absolutely vital piece of infrastructure in the name of mobility. So you, you mentioned disadvantaged communities. Let's talk about multifamily dwellings for a minute. I'm a big fan of of seeing EV chargers in multifamily dwellings. And I have a friend that actually works for a large real estate company, and he says we can actually lease and rent out property easier if it has electric vehicle charging availability. Tell us a little bit more what you're doing to aid multifamily dwelling and disadvantaged communities, Lou. Absolutely. So what we are doing at MD7 is we're coordinating very closely with the various power companies, especially let's talk here in Southern California, Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric. They all have initiatives, be that Power Your Drive or Charge Ready 2. And these initiatives specifically target multifamily dwellings so that when they're being built or developed, as you see lots of new development these days in Southern California, the make-ready infrastructure to support electric vehicles is being included in the underlying design plan. That's amazing. Most of these large real estate companies are very open to redesigning their parking structures to incorporate a significant portion of these chargers. And a lot of that is driven by San Diego Gas and Electric and Edison's allocated funding to reimburse whoever does put that infrastructure in place and at what time that they do it. For us, it really makes a lot of sense to make sure that we are up to date on the latest and greatest bills from these utility companies and ensure that we can provide the maximum amount of value and the maximum amount of chargers in these places to help with mass adoption. Lots of people who live in these places or work in these places say, oh, I have really nowhere to charge. If you can charge at home and you can charge at work, then that has really solved the problem in some ways. And now we're just filling in the gaps from a transit perspective. So we've got the funding for the infrastructure. We seem to be educating the public that, you know, range anxiety is not such a problem and EVs are not just for tree huggers anymore, sure. you know, which is when I got into it, you had like straw hats and burks and stocks if you, if you drove a, an electric car. So what are some of the challenges, do you think, that we're going to have in actually implementing EV infrastructure? When we pick a site, for example, what are the challenges to put public EV chargers in, Luke? Well, one of the challenges that we face is just one, a cooperative property owner. When they understand all the things that go into actually building like a DC fast charger, for example, which involves a transformer upgrade in some cases, it involves new power point of connection. You can't piggyback off the building. These things, when you start to talk about trenching up a parking lot of, let's use Target, for example, you know, in the months of October through January, they're not super jazzed about that, right? <laughs> so for our perspective and, and our services, our job is to make that process as easy as can be on the property owner, because then the property owner is more open to more spaces. Understanding the various jurisdictions and their nuances is one thing, but a personal relationship with the person who has now got to look at these chargers every single day and, and make sure that they're on board with the build plan, with the construction, with how quickly this gets done, we think that is paramount to ensuring that we get enough of these chargers in place in time 
for some of you know either the federal government or the state of California's targets to get people driving electric vehicles. I think the other thing that we face from a challenge perspective is truly just enough people in the industry to help push this forward. When you look at a comparing industry like telecom, you've got you know tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand people that work in this sector in some way supporting that infrastructure. Whereas electric vehicles is, is truly new and budding and just about all the EV companies that you think about and name right now, they're all startups in some way. They might have been around a decade, right? But they were much smaller and now they're starting to come into scale and they're running into the same problems that some of the other industries have and that's workforce. So helping get the education out there, helping bring people in from adjacent industries like telecom where they have the applicable skill sets to expedite this. These are all things that I think that we as an industry should be focused on doing to ensure that we're successful. So I'm on the waiting list for my electric car, and it's got a range of around 380 miles. Our headquarters is in Phoenix, and I'm living here in Seal Beach, and there's a corridor where I can't make the journey without a stop and a charge. How are we going to fill these corridors? I mean, right now, you're not going to run out of gas between your tank. And by the way, I just loved your article. It was so full of data. <laughs> 300 miles on a tank, 30 miles per day is the average ice vehicle that it drives. Pretty soon, we shouldn't be worrying about that range anxiety, but I am. I've got it. <laughs> and, uh, what can we do to fill those gaps, Lou? I think that what you do is very similar to what we've done in telecom. And you start to look at those dark zones, we would call them, right? And you start to look and say, where would people be most likely to stop? And we need to target these areas with this infrastructure. And in most cases, the drive between Seal Beach and I think you said Tucson or, or Phoenix, wherever your headquarters is, you run into a large desolate desert area where it's extremely expensive to upgrade the infrastructure there. It's very expensive to pull new power and get the proper transformers to support a large DC fast charging station. But just because it's expensive doesn't mean it is impossible. So I think a priority for the industry in general and for some of these charging deployment companies needs to be understanding where consumers are trying to go and trying to predict what, you know, underlying grid upgrades need to be made now, knowing it takes three, four, five years to upgrade a power station. How do we start that process now, knowing that in the very near future, we will need that to support mass adoption? The cars aren't even in people's hands the way that we would like them to be right now. And if anybody's tried to buy a car lately, you mentioned you're on a waiting list. Just about everybody is, myself included on some of the new stuff. So we have some time, but every month that we lose not taking steps to be proactive about it is something that is going to come back to haunt us later, I think. So I want to make sure that we give some emphasis towards 5G and the smart infrastructure. I'm a big fan of V2G. I know in your article, you mentioned the Ford, the electric, is it the F-150? What, what model is that? Yes, list? the Lightning, the, the F-150 The Lightning. F-150 Lightning, which incidentally can power up a certain part of your house if you plug your car in, which is really, really cool. So I, I want to hear a little bit more about V to E, vehicle to everything. Tell us a little bit more. Sure. So one use case that has been talked about for vehicle to everything is how it communicates with the other vehicles around it. If you've driven anywhere in California, you know that we have these things called HOV lanes or high occupancy vehicle lanes, which is a specialized lane in the part of the highway, which in theory is used to keep traffic moving more smoothly and, and at a higher rate because you've got less people in it. I have a vision for one day when you have enough of these, you know, 
connected vehicles to where there is a lane for electric vehicles, for connected vehicles, where you're using data from 100, 150 cars in your area on how fast they're traveling as a group and when they're braking and when they're not braking to make that transition into getting on and off the freeway to getting to where you need to go. Having that lane and having these vehicles that talk to each other so that they know what to do in the instance to avoid an accident or to avoid even a significant slowdown because traffic is created when somebody at the front of the line hits their brakes for a reason that is undetermined. And then that is kind of a ripple effect all the way through the middle of the highway via traffic. So vehicle to everything, in my opinion, one of the great and easy use cases for that would be solving that problem, right? If you know that the car 30 cars ahead of you is moving at you know 80 miles an hour, then your vehicle knows that it is safe to do that until the conditions, the driving conditions change ahead of you. And the vehicle will know that before you did. Another great use case is for these autonomous vehicles. It is possible that you put a computer inside of a car that is good for five to seven years. But as we know, technology evolves very rapidly, especially in the AI space and the computer space. It is more effective to have a base station with a supercomputer that can be updated periodically that just communicates over that 5G network to the vehicle itself. It can probably detect an accident before you would be able to and apply the brakes before you as a human could do so. So using that to talk about the safety aspect of our highways as well, I think everything that we can do that reduces fatalities on the road, needless fatalities on the road and human error, which is the cause of most accidents, is an excellent step in the right direction and we should embrace that. So you used a word I love, vision. That's a key word for me. Sure. A use case. This use case is not that far-fetched because we were doing this with air conditioning units here in California, maybe even in San Diego, where your air conditioning unit was on a specific circuit that the utility could switch it on or off depending on some peak demands on their infrastructure. So what if you were to plug in your electric vehicle and let's say there's a hundred electric vehicles in the neighborhood and they needed power and they would sell you electricity cheaper for your electric vehicle if you would allow them to dissipate the energy at certain times for peak demand shaving. Have you heard anything about this with the V2G? I have. I've heard a little bit about that. And I think V2G is such an interesting concept that it helps buffer a lot of people's, you know, national grid concerns about electric vehicles and how many people will own them and be plugged in at the same time. If you use all of these vehicles as one giant battery source in times of need, then you, you circumvent that issue. And the strain on the grid is a lot less demanding when you can tell these vehicles when to charge, when not to charge, off-peak rates, offer them a better return on investment for plugging in at that time and, and providing their energy back to the grid. I think that the uses are, are honestly numerous, and it's something that we should really be focused on as an industry to bring to light. All right. Finally, you told me you're on a waiting list. What's your favorite EV? <laughs> That's my favorite question these days. <laughs> uh, right now, I actually own a few different electric vehicles. I've got a Volvo S60 hybrid. It's a plug-in hybrid that I love. Volvo makes an, an amazing vehicle. I've also got the fully electric version of the Polestar 2, and I've got an Audi e-tron. So of all of the three, my favorite vehicle right now is probably the Volvo. I think I'm a hybrid guy uh, at the moment because of, of how amazing the two powertrains really complement each other. But I love the Polestar as well. Being fully electric, that instant torque, 
it's it's just an excellent car and it's very fun to drive. But I am on a waiting list for the Grand Cherokee 4xe hybrid and the F-150 Lightning as well as the Silverado EV. I am a car fanatic. I have come from a car background and everyone in my family always had multiple and we would go to the racetrack and have lots of fun. So for me, it's almost like reigniting that passion and getting to do it all over again, but this time with electricity and, and doing it in a way that's renewable and sustainable. So for me, I love them all, but if I had to pick an absolute favorite, right now I would say I'm most excited about the Grand Cherokee. The concept of merging my two worlds of, of being an outdoors guy and being a car guy, being able to take my vehicle off-road and see nature in a silent manner is extremely attractive to me. I'd hate to see your electric bill with all those EVs. Oh my, you're a candidate for a TOU, a time of use for sure. I agree. We've got solar and that helps a little bit, but I, I need to look into power walls or something to store some more. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, San Diego Gas and Electric, you're in San Diego. They were one of the early implementation, if you like, of time of use where you had a special dedicated meter for your electric vehicle. Yes. Given that you've got so much energy that you're consuming, do they still do that? Can you have a, a TOU for your EVs? They do still. Actually, SDG&E has a ton of great programs and rebates for people who either already own EVs and want to install a charger at their home that might already have a smart meter, etc., or for people who are thinking about buying one, especially for you know the multi-dwelling units that are going to install them for their residents or, or for their office tenants. I am a huge fan of San Diego Gas and Electric's approach to adoption here, and we've spent some time as a company talking to them directly about how we can help support those efforts. I think that they are, are looking forward and, and very much embracing what is going to be the next evolution in mobile. So sadly, Lou, we have come to the end of our interview. It's been a blast having you on the show. Hopefully you'll come back and tell us what you're doing to change the world with their MD7. It's been great to have you on board. We'd like to invite you back again. I very much appreciate it, Ruth. Thank you for having me. And thank you for hosting the chat, right? I think things like this, putting this into the hands of people who are on the fence about whether or not now's the time to convert. I think that them hearing us have this conversation today can only help. And I'm very excited about the future of mobility and, and honestly, MP7's opportunity to help speed up mass adoption. So thank you again, Ruth. I very much appreciate it. You're welcome. It's been great to have you on the show, Lou. That's about all for this episode of EV Chat. Thank you to Lou for chatting with me today. It's been a great episode. And thank you to our sponsor, Fluke Corporation. We'll be seeing you soon. Ciao.